0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 123, looking this morning at verses one through four, continuing in this series of studies of the songs of ascent, the pilgrim psalms, traveler's psalms. Uh, It's either about or sung during the pilgrimages to Jerusalem to celebrate the feasts, Uh, many of them. Directly, having a traveling theme, uh, quite a few of them dealing with the theme of God's protection. And in a sense, that's uh, the theme of the psalm that is before us this morning. So Psalm 123, verses 1 through 4. Hear the word of God. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid-servant look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease of the contempt of the proud. Our Father, we thank you for these words and pray that as we study them this morning, that we would be led and instructed by your spirit. Father, we pray uh, that you would be present with us to minister your grace through your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The Puritan preacher and poet John Donne wrote these well-known words, No man is an island entire of itself. He goes on uh, later uh, to write, Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind and therefore never sin to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for the." Well, if as, Don, as uh, John Dunn says, no man is an island, uh, but we are interconnected with one another. What affects one of us affects other of us, and certainly that's very true in the church and in the congregation. Well, how much more then is it true that we're interconnected with God? But there's a difference. The difference is we are dependent on God, but he is in no way whatsoever dependent on us, we need him, but he doesn't need us. And just as we never live, even when we try to, apart from the effects of other people and affecting other people, so we never live apart from God Himself. When Paul visited Athens in uh, Acts chapter seventeen, spoke to the people there, uh, not Christians, he said. To them, in God, we live and move and have our being. He wasn't referring, obviously, just to Christians, since he was addressing this, this crowd of unbelievers, of non-Christians there at the Areopagus. Uh, what, what Paul effectively was saying is this. Even the atheist is dependent upon the God he doesn't believe in for everything that he has, for each breath he takes, for every moment he continues to exist. We cannot live independently of God. In fact, every one of us, every day, lives at the mercy of God and by the grace of God. Now, the Christian differs in that we acknowledge that. We don't just acknowledge it, we embrace that. Uh, We give thanks to God for the fact that every day he shows us mercy, and for the Christian, his saving mercy to us, his forgiveness For us, his love for us in Christ Jesus. Psalm 123 is a psalm about the mercy of God. In case you needed a clue, the word mercy occurs three times in these four verses, and they're clustered right in the middle, right at the apex of this psalm. This is a psalm about the mercy of God, his mercy upon us. Now, as we study these words this morning, I want us to think about this, that we should live, as Christians, as God's people, we should live each day in conscious dependence on the mercy of God. Live each day in conscious dependence and consciously pursuing the mercies of God for us in Christ. Well, what does that look like? Well, the psalm tells us, uh, very briefly, uh, it tells us, first of all, the source of this mercy... God himself, and we recognize who God is in, in verses 1 and 2, the source of this mercy that comes to us. And the psalmist portrays him a couple of ways. First of all, he portrays God as our king. Notice verse 1. He's our king. He says, to you I lift up my eyes. Now, I have to admit, I lift up my eyes. It sounds very spiritual, doesn't it? Uh, we actually encountered that expression back in Psalm 121 Verse 1, I lift up my eyes to the hills. It sounds very lofty and spiritual, but I have to break it to you. That's just the Hebrew idiom that means I looked at, right? Uh, in the Old Testament, it occurs a number of times since it's a Hebrew expression. Uh, the Old Testament originally written in, in mostly in Hebrew. Um, lift up our eyes to the heavens? Absolutely. Uh, but it also speaks of lifting up the eyes to idols, and uh, Jesus, in the New Testament, speaks of lifting up your eyes and looking at the fields that are white unto harvest. Lift up your eyes. What he's saying is is not worship it, not look to it in adoration, but just get a good look at it. So, I lift up my eyes is just a Hebrew idiom that means I looked at something. I saw something. I, I, I studied it. I looked at it. Now, there's a difference here from Psalm 121, Right? I lift up my eyes to the hills. And when we studied that psalm a few weeks ago, we said it's more likely not that he's looking to the hills for his help. He's looking to the hills and sees a threat. A threat, as we talked about, of bandits or the treacherous terrain or the the, the perils of travel. And he says, I looked at the hills. I see this. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. Well, here he talks about lifting his eyes up to to God. To you, I lift up my eyes. Actually, uh, looking at the hills is one thing, but here he focuses his gaze where it ought to be. Like Peter, you know, when Jesus called him out of the boat. As long as Peter was looking at Jesus and fixed on Jesus, he was walking on the water. But the storm distracted him and he lifted up his eyes to the waves and the wind and the rain and, and he started sinking. But we don't want to look at the dangers. We don't want to look at the perils. We want to look at Jesus. We want to look at at God, our King. And that's what he says here. To you I lift up my eyes O you who are enthroned in the heavens. There is God portrayed as our King. The point of that, of course, is, is rule. The point is governance. And right up front, he acknowledges that God is the one who reigns. God is the one who is sovereign, the one who is in control. Dear friends, if you learn nothing else from this psalm, come away from this psalm with the same view the psalmist had of God as the one who is in control. Because strangely, even many professing Christians have this view that somehow God is there, and he means well, And he wants the best for us, but this world just sort of spins out of control on its own. I know, know, professing Christians who have that view of God. How terrifying. That's not the view of Scripture. It's not the view of verse 1. The view of verse 1 is that God sits on the throne. He reigns. He rules over those things we would consider good, but he also rules over those things we would consider bad. He is sovereign over those things, too. He may be sovereign over them sinlessly, but he is, in fact, sovereign over those things, too. And so we lift up our eyes here, not not to the place of danger, not to the place of threat, but to the one who is enthroned in the heavens, the one who is the king, the one who is rule, who rules over it. We don't take that for granted. We don't want to diminish God. We don't want to dethrone God. In our minds. So if you're going to be biblical, if you're going to have your theology correct, Christian, you need to recognize God is sovereign over the spirals of galaxies and over the socks you put on this morning. He's sovereign. He's the king. But there also is this image here, this beautiful image in this psalm. Not just of God as our king, the one who reigns, but God is our master. Uh, even God is our mistress. Notice verse two. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid servant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God. There's an analogy here, a comparison of God as our master, and we are His servants. And no service ever gave greater freedom than the service of God in Christ. You see, man wants to be free. He wants to say, I want my way. I want to do what I want to do. I want to be independent of God. I want to be free. Well, being independent of God and being free is an oxymoron. Independence from God is slavery to your sin. No greater freedom is found than in servitude to God in Christ Jesus. If the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. But that's the image here. First it was of God as our king who reigns, and then it's God as our master. We are his servants. And the comparison is a servant would look to his master, as a maidservant would look to her mistress. But look specifically at what? Notice verse 2. They look to the hand of their master. Look to the hand of her mistress. Why? Why? Well, an attentive servant to the master, or a maid servant to the mistress, is at the back and call of, of that master, that mistress, and often instruction was conveyed not through word, but through gesture, and so they would be very attentive to that hand, but you know as it speaks of comparing our relationship to God in that way, it, it indicates to us how we're looking to the Lord. God doesn't have a body. He doesn't have a hand. He does incarnate in Christ Jesus, of course. Uh, But God does not have a body like men, as the catechism says. So hand would be metaphorical. But but what's the servant looking for from that hand? We could think of several things. Uh, And it would instruct us how we look to the Lord. We look to the Lord attentively. That servant, that maid servant, is watching the hand of his master, of her mistress. Attentively so that they pick up any signal given. They are attentive to the will of the Master as expressed by the hand, a gesture. Maybe to come near, maybe to depart, maybe to get something, whatever it might be. And to do that, they have to be attentive. Well, in the same way, we have to be attentive to the Lord, which, for our purposes, comes primarily through the Word of God. And secondarily, I say, by the Spirit, Uh, because the Spirit will guide us according to the Word of God, never contrary to the Word of God. So as the eyes of the servant look to the Master attentively, we want to be attentive to God. We want to be looking to Him in that same way, ready to receive whatever communication He has for us by His Word. Yes, we may be led by the Spirit, but that will always be accompanied by in an agreement with the Word of God. We look to the Lord submissively. The servant doesn't look to his master, a maid servant to her mistress, uh, to decide, hmm, I don't like that. I, I'm not going to do that. That's not what I had in mind today. No. The servant is submissive to the master. When the master indicates a task to be done, an errand to be run, whatever it might be, the servant is submissive. So how does a servant look to the hand of his master? Submissively, ready to, to, to obey and do whatever needs to be done, because he recognizes his place is in submission to the master. We also look to the Lord, if we're looking at this, expectantly. Why would the servant look to the hand of the master, uh, other than expecting that he might receive some instruction or some direction? So there's a sense of expectation there. But a servant also looks to the hand of the master trustingly. You see, the servant depends on the master. The maidservant was dependent on her mistress to provide, just as we are dependent on the hand of the Lord to provide for us. So there's this wonderful imagery that is in this psalm uh, that depicts our relationship to our Heavenly Father in the way that the servant will watch the hand of his master, the maidservant, the hand of her mistress, attentively, submissively, expectantly, trustingly. And in the same way, that is how we look to God. So our eyes look to the Lord, our God, till he has mercy on us. The servant, the maidservant in those days was completely uh, dependent on the master, on the mistress. And apart from the mercy of that master or mistress, the servant could be in trouble. Because the master or the mistress could do pretty much whatever they wanted. Remember when Sarah sent Hagar away. Don't want her anymore. Get out of here. Go away. Send her off into the wilderness. Well, there was a dependence there. Till he has mercy on us. Now, you take that out of the literal context of, of servanthood, and you look at it in terms of who God is. And you recognize how much more. That's true of us. That we are looking to the Lord until he has mercy on us. Because we're not just servants. Apart from Christ, we are rebels. We are enemies. There is hostility between us and God. And so how much more are we looking to him? And this mercy, as the scriptures tells us, is found in Christ. Christ, through his Bearing our sin through his death, through his crucifixion, satisfied our sin debt toward God, reconciled us to God. And so we are looking to God in Christ until he has mercy on us, until our sins are forgiven, until our guilty conscience is calmed. How much more we who have known the love of Christ wait expectantly and submissively In all those ways, on the Lord for his mercy. You know, Jesus told a parable about the unjust judge. That a woman had a case and she came to this judge and he ignored her and he put her off and she kept coming back and kept coming back and pestered him and bothered him and disturbed him until finally he'd had enough and he says, I'll grant this woman justice lest she wear me out by her persistence, by her boldness. And so he acknowledges her request and grants her justice. Now, it would be easy to come away with the wrong message from that psalm. God doesn't want to be bothered by you. He really has other things to do, and you come to him with your little prayers, and you bother him, and you pester him, and you annoy him to the point he finally says, okay, just to, just to get rid of him, I'm going to give him what he wants. Is that what that parable is teaching? Absolutely not. It's a particular form of argument. How much more? How much more? You see, Jesus' point was, if this unjust judge, fallen Possibly corrupt, selfish, as he was, is willing to grant this woman what she wants because of her persistence. How much more than, Jesus says, will your heavenly Father grant you what you have asked from him? Because our heavenly Father is not like that unjust judge. He's not corrupt. He's not self serving. He's not selfish. He loves us. In Christ, he loves us. He gave us Christ. How could we not then expect that he would in him freely give us everything that we need? And so we look at at verse 2 in light of the New Testament, in light of the whole of Scripture, and we recognize that those mercies of God come upon us in Christ Jesus. And by the way, mercy is what we want, not justice. Don't ever, ever, ever ask God for justice for yourself. Because we don't want justice. Christ got justice on the cross that we deserved. We want the mercies of God for ourselves, and we want the mercies of God for our worst enemies. So that's the first half of this psalm. It's simply looking at the source of mercy, God himself, our king, our master. Then he goes on to talk on a more human level about our need for God's mercy particularly as it relates to the world around us. Notice verse 3. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. Mercy, Lord, mercy. We want to put it very succinctly. Why? What is it particularly that he's bothered about? For we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough Of the scorn of those who are at ease, the contempt, of the proud. You see, there's a call here for mercy in the face of human contempt, scorn, mocking. Maybe as faithful pilgrims, those who were at ease, those who had it good, those who weren't on the open road facing these perils of the journey, They were being mocked, ridiculed, held in contempt, held in scorn, perhaps for their devotion to the Lord. And so he calls out for protection, calls out for relief. And by the way, this assumes, verse 1, this assumes God's rule. Otherwise, why call out to God? The assumption is God can do something about it. And so they call out for protection, for relief from their enemies. Uh, there's this contempt, there's this scorn, there's this mocking. We might say just the unbelieving world that looks at God's people with this kind of contempt, this kind of scorn, this kind of condescension. And that's hard to take. That's not fun when you know that people look down on you for being a Christian. They look at you as some sort of intellectually deficient self-righteous, delusional pest. You know, Paul experienced that. He wrote about that in 1 Corinthians, where he said uh, you know, that, that the gospel is foolishness to Gentiles, and it's offensive to Jews that the Messiah would die, but to us who are being saved, it is the wisdom and the power of God or salvation. But yeah, it still hurts to know that the world holds you in contempt. The world looks at you with scorn. And that's exactly what he expresses. We're fed up with that. We've had enough of that. What's with that? Had enough of it. You know, that's true. That's true for us, whether it comes in the form of some person particularly, or just the world generally, because this is a fallen world. Because this is a world in rebellion against its maker. And we, by God's grace, have been redeemed from that, plucked out of that stream, rushing headlong over the over the cliff. Uh, but still, you feel the force of that stream pressing against you, whether it's expressed personally Or not. Just the the nature of this fallen world where where there's disease and illness and disappointment, alienation, misunderstanding, all these kinds of things that go along with living in a fallen world. And dear friends, if you haven't ever reached a point where you just say, I am weary of this, anyway, if your prayer has not come, Lord Jesus, then maybe you need to dig a little deeper into the scriptures and walk a little more closely with, with Jesus. Because you will feel it. There will, you will know this, this, having had more than enough, uh, this, this weariness with it, whether it's active or just passively living in this fallen world. But notice, somewhat appropriately, that unlike some of the Psalms, there's no resolution. You know, I love Psalm 73. He mentioned it recently where Asaph's wrestling over why the wicked prosper and the righteous seem to suffer. And he says, then I came into the sanctuary of God and I perceived their end and the feet of the wicked are set in slippery places. You know, they may appear to have it all together and things are going great, but, but that's very precarious. You don't get that here. You don't get that kind of resolution, that, that satisfying uh, conclusion that says, yes, we're Right. They're in a bad spot, not us. It just ends with the words, the contempt of the proud. In some ways, that's more realistic. Because as long as we're in this world, we will not experience that resolution. But, be assured of this, no prayer for the mercy of God will go unanswered. We will experience his mercy, his deliverance, relief, either in this world, and oftentimes we do, and absolutely and fully and certainly in the world that is to come with the return of Christ and the uh, completion of that work of salvation in in the new heavens, a new earth, this new universe that has been redeemed by the blood of Christ that will be ushered in. Every prayer for mercy, every prayer for relief whether it's from our own residual fallen nature or from sin in this world, will be answered fully and completely, completely. Have mercy upon us. Oh, Lord, have mercy upon us. You see, our posture before God is that of subjects who look to their king, as servants who look to their master. And we recognize ultimately that our deliverance is from him. Mercy, oh, Lord mercy let's pray father we are not as self-sufficient as we sometimes like to think of ourselves father we recognize that uh, we do live and move and have our being in you we realize that we depend on you for life and breath and everything else father you show us untold mercies beyond what we can imagine and that was just this morning be alive, to be under your grace, to be with your people, to be under your word. Father, thank you for the many, many mercies we experience every day and never even think to thank you. But thank you too, Father, for those we see and know, the evidences, the demonstrations of your goodness and grace toward us. Father, give us thankful hearts for those things. We pray even more, Lord, for mercy, mercy from you your judgment thank you that jesus suffered that for us mercy lord as we live in this world we are in an alien terrain we are like the subjects of these psalms pilgrims passing through on our way to our home and so father we pray that you would show us mercy spare us the contempt and scorn of those around us lord even in the face of that contempt and scorn make us a blessing make us the uh, the evidence of the power of the gospel. Lord, let us be the conduits of the love of Christ for them, even in the face of their hatred for us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.